0: This is Havruta, Jewish Texts and Their Influence on Our Lives. I'm Ali Viterbi.
1: And I'm Rabbi Phil Grobart. And each month, we bring in a guest to teach us their favorite piece of Jewish text.
0: Today's guests are us. Just as we did last season, we've decided to take a mid-season break and share with you some more of our own personal favorite texts. I think what's so great about engaging with text in a sacred way is that you can read and reread the same text over and over and find new meaning in it each time, depending on the month, the year, or even just the way you're feeling that day. And that depending on the month or the year or how you're feeling, you might find you have a new piece of favorite text. A new text may speak to you differently. So Rabbi Grovard and I have decided to take some time today to discuss two texts that are especially meaningful to us this year right now. So Rabbi Grovart, do you have a text to share with us?
1: I do, yes. Um, so I've been, I, I'm hesitant to use the word obsessed, but I've been very interested in um, the topic of theodicy for, I mean, even before my career, but certainly for my whole career. So theodicy is the problem of evil. And um, it's why we have this imperfect world and this perfect God. And, um, and it starts with three irreconcilable statements. So there's three sentences that are not reconcilable, they can't all be true simultaneously. So the three sentences are, God is omnipotent and God is all powerful. God is all good. And sometimes the word we use for that in theology is just benevolent, so God is all good. And the third sentence is evil exists or undeserved suffering exists. So these three statements can't all exist simultaneously because if God's all powerful and God's all good, then God has the motivation to stop evil. So there really shouldn't be evil. There shouldn't be any undeserved suffering. That's the problem. Two of these three can exist at the same time. So you could say like God's all powerful and, uh, and there is suffering, but God is not all good. Maybe God's just not good. God's wicked. That actually is the solution of Job through a lot of the book of Job. Job says that God just isn't good. God is my enemy. God maybe is wicked. God's all powerful uh, and, um, and evil exists and God just doesn't care. So that's Job's solution until the very end of the book. Or you could say that um, God is all good and that evil exists, but um, God's not omnipotent. That's a famous solution. That's Rabbi Harold Kushner in the book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. That's what he comes up with. He says that in the end, God is just not powerful enough. God's very, very powerful, but not powerful enough to, to stop all evil. Or the traditional answer is that God is omnipotent and God is all good, and that evil doesn't really exist. That in fact, what looks like evil to us actually turns out to be good in the long run, but it's a mystery, and we can't figure out why. That's that's the traditional response. So, um, so I've been um, I, again, I don't always like to use the word obsessed, but I've been extremely interested in this from the beginning of my own Jewish consciousness. And the thing is, I'm not really sure why because I haven't had a bad life. It's not like I have had evil around me all the time. And on the contrary, I've had a very blessed life. But um, somehow just this, um, maybe it's the intellectual puzzle. Maybe it's my own work as a rabbi. It's just come back to me over and over again. And um, and it has become particularly important now these couple of days, these several days. And I'll tell you why in a moment. Um, my first funeral as a rabbi, I had actually hadn't even graduated rabbinical school yet, but my first funeral as a rabbinical student in the small congregation, two twins, eight-year-old boys that died in a plane crash. And um, what I remember most, and a lot of it I've just blocked out of my own memory, but I remember most is the look on the faces of the parents for the whole weekend that I spent with them. It wasn't even... you the look of grief, grief almost is almost too simple to think, okay, that's what I'm looking at. It was this shock and puzzlement, like I must be in the wrong place. And I've seen it a few other times in my career. It's, it's a face that says almost like, I, I need to speak to your supervisor. Like look at, looking at me you know, as the rabbi, as the representative of the cosmos and projecting to me something is just wrong. This isn't my reality. I'm, I, I'm not living through a reality where my children have died. That can't possibly be true. So that was my first funeral. And afterwards I was thinking, man, this is it. Like, this is my career. (laughs) This was one one terrible (sighs) piece of grief after another. And what's interesting is nothing like that ever happened again. I I never had for the rest of my career, and I'm retired now, but I never had for the rest of my career a funeral of a child. Uh, At at first I thought it was gonna be every day, every week, but it it actually never happened again. Most of the funerals that I did, not all of them, but most were people that had lived a long time. So it's always sad, but it didn't seem like grappling with evil. A few times younger people or tragic circumstances, but mostly it was people that had lived long lives. And so you wouldn't characterize those losses necessarily as as tragic or unfair. But there's one other incident that happened to me that I think really um, just made concrete my own obsession with the topic. There was a colleague of mine, not, not even a friend who graduated around the same time I did, who in addition to being a rabbi was a nurse. Her first career was she was a nurse and then went to rabbinical school and graduated, became a rabbi. And she took a congregation in Alabama and the, the, the location is important. And because she was a nurse, this was the beginning of the AIDS crisis. So she volunteered in an AIDS clinic and she was taking blood from AIDS patients and she was um, a skilled nurse. So she took a lot of care to make sure that she didn't accidentally prick herself. And, and she knew how to do that. She knew how to make, take, make precau- take precautions and she wore gloves and everything that you need. Now, remember I said it, it was Alabama and there was um, an earthquake and, and there aren't any earthquakes in Alabama. Like one, once every hundred years, there's an earthquake in Alabama. There was an earthquake as she was taking blood from an AIDS patient and she accidentally pricked herself and she gave herself the virus. And um, and this is before all the wonderful cures that we have now. So she um, she got sick pretty quickly and then she ended up passing away maybe a year or two later. And I remember when I, when I heard the story and, and thought about her, it, it's not just that um, it was some accident, you know, and, and, and then she got sick and died. Um, she was doing holy work at the time that she pricked herself. I, I was trying to think, think. So that night she was working with homeless AIDS patients. What was I doing that night? I was, I was watching TV, you know, I was at a bar, who who knows what I was doing, but I I wasn't doing anything comparable in morality to what she was doing. But, um, but she got stuck with a a needle and and not because of any carelessness, not even like a a common accident, other common accidents, but an earthquake in Alabama. And it, it just blew my mind. And, uh, and I think it started me reading more and more about this problem. How can an all-powerful, all-loving God allow this kind of suffering? All right, um, oh. <laughs> so, so that's the background. Um, now I'm, I'm getting to, um, to now. So why is this coming up now? I mean, I've, I'm always interested in this, um, but um, I just feel like in the last two years and then the last month, you remember I said that um, that family, they would look at my face as a representative of religion and say, and think, I need to speak to your supervisor. There's just something that's gone terribly wrong. And I'm feeling like that now with God. Like, I, I need to speak to your supervisor. There's just something that's just not working about this world that you created, with all the beauty, of course, and wonderful things. But, you know, we, we have the two years of the pandemic. Incredible losses, just in, in the United States, all through the world, millions of people. In the end, it will be millions of people, and and many, many millions suffering. And um, so that's one thing. Now that's nature, a virus. And so you want to say, well, God, what's the purpose of that of that virus? But but okay, let's we'll we'll put the that part on hold. What what's awful, and um, and and leads me to a kind of despair is it seems like human beings are not able to effectively deal with this in in our politics. So our collective action is expressed through our politics. And for whatever reason, not just in the United States, but certainly in the United States, our politics has not allowed us to deal with the virus in ways which we would all think are wise. We we lost our sense of wisdom in our politics. And it it makes us like the the height of creation, human beings are, are not able to deal with crises that come our way, that come our way from nature. Our, our politics, our, our makeup, our psychological makeup doesn't allow us to deal with these things effectively. And now as we come to the end of it, there's a war. And, and the war, which of course is a human invention, and, and, and the war will cause suffering for million. already has caused suffering for millions and millions more. And uh, who knows what the casualty count will be, but, but very, very high. So I'm, I'm not feeling so good about God's work these days. And, and it, it comes back to that theodicy. Um, theodicy, interesting, the word really means two things. Literally, theodicy means a defense of God. You have the theo and disease a defense. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it, it's so people that engage in theodicy come up with sort of an apologetic for God, a defense of God. Um, or it just means the problem of evil, the problem of unnecessary suffering. So I'm mm-hmm. kind of thinking it both ways. So um, that leads me to my text. So I've, I've thought about this issue for a very long time, done a lot of reading, will continue to do a lot of reading. And really it wasn't that long ago, I think it was on another podcast. Um, (laughs) I I, I listened to uh, to somebody just talk about this particular text in a different context. And I thought, okay, that's what I wanna talk about. So, So I'm gonna get to it. So the text is a Midrash, and it's a commentary on a very puzzling line from the Torah, actually from Genesis. And very often, this is a line that creates maybe the first wise question that a Torah student will ask in reading through the Torah, because it presents us with a real puzzle from the creation of the world. And um, so when God decides to create human beings, the English is, God said, let us make man. So the Hebrew there is let us make man, in our image. So the question you're going to ask is, who is God talking to? God said, let us make man. Who are you going to make man with? And then it says, B'tzalmenu, in our image. So um, if you're a serious s- student of Torah in, in Hebrew school, first thing you're going to say is that, well, there's only one God. And I thought God created everything by God's self. And this is, I mean, Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Achad. There's, there's only one God. So who's God talking to? So of course, um, you know, we're not the first to notice that. And there's been um, mountains of interpretation just on this one phrase, let us make man. So I'm gonna read a little bit. This is from the Midrash. This is Breshit Rabbah, uh, chapter eight. And I'll read a little bit of it. Most of it I'm gonna ignore except for just really one line, maybe two lines. But this is the beginning with whom did he take counsel? Okay, so who did God ask? Rabbi Yoshua Ben Levi said, he took counsel with the works of heaven and earth, like a king who had two advisors, without whose knowledge he did nothing whatsoever. Okay, so God had already made heaven and earth, so that's who God asked. Hey, should we have human beings? Rabbi Shmuel Bar Nachmani said, he took counsel with the works of each day. So he didn't just take counsel with heaven and earth, with all created things, everything that was was created up to that point, like a king who had an associate, without whose knowledge, he did nothing. Also, you know, we have God here as being a kind of boss, like a, a good boss with good management techniques. You know, God's always checking with the with the other with the other workers. Is okay? Should I make man? And okay. So those are cute. Th- those are not. I'm not going to spend time on those. Uh, I-, I don't see anything particularly deep or philosophical there. Maybe I, it's just not where I'm going. I'm going to the next line. Rab Ami said, he took counsel with his own heart this is already fascinating to me. So, so God asks himself and I'm sorry to keep using the, the male pronoun. I, I can't help it here. That, that's in the text itself. And, um, and I'm, I'm, many ways I'm too old to change. Uh, but, but you know what I mean? I mean, but what we're going to get here is that God is not just complicated, but there's a plurality in God. He hmm. took counsel with his own heart. Like part of God asked another part of God, Hey, should we do this? And it's more maybe than just a plurality. It's, um, there's an inner conflict in God. Maybe part of God wants to do it, part of God doesn't want to do it. Or maybe part of God mm-hmm. represents a whole different system of thought, and part of God represents a different system of thought. I'm going to go on a little bit more. It may be compared to a king who has a palace built by an architect, but when he saw it did not please him, with whom is he to be indignant? Surely with the architect. So what's confusing and interesting, fascinating about this metaphor is that God is both the king and the architect, and and the palace is the world. So God creates the world, doesn't like it, and then says, I need to speak to your manager. (laughs) I don't don't like this, but, but the manager is God himself. You know, God is the architect. So it's projecting this inner conflict. Part of God created the world. Part of God is very dissatisfied with the world. So God is complaining to God's self. And then the quote is from Genesis also, and it grieved him in his heart. This is the line when God decides to destroy the world in the story of Noah, and it grieved him in his heart that already in the text there, you have God just as the plurality, as, as a, with, with his inner conflict, as, a, as multiple personalities. All right, so um, again, this is, um, I don't wanna say this is common knowledge, but the idea that God is very complicated, that there's different sides to God, so we have that in Jewish tradition. It, it's it's um, made very complicated and interesting in Jewish mysticism. But the simplest way, we already have that in the first book of Genesis, where God is known by two names. In the creation story, there's the two famous names of God. One is Elohim and one is Adonai. And, you know, it's not actually Adonai. We're not allowed to pronounce that one. So we say Adonai instead. But we have So the two names that we can pronounce are Elohim and Adonai. And taking off from this Midrash, the most common thing to say is that um, they represent two sides of God and Elohim represents God as judge, justice. And that's the God that makes the rules, that punishes if you break the rules. And then Adonai is God as mercy. So that's the God that forgives through love, that, that maybe transcends the rules of justice and makes its way towards forgiveness. And that's a fairly common system in rabbinic thought. Adonai represents mercy, Elohim represents justice, God is complicated, and it's the balance of those two that, that creates God. So what I want to teach right now, I'm finally there, is something I, that I didn't make up myself, but has become very important to me. And this is from a, um, a book I read by Harold Schulweis, Rabbi Harold Shulweiss, who was a great, great rabbi in uh, in Los Angeles and passed away, five, six years ago, something like that. Um, So he modifies this Adonai Elohim, the justice and mercy. And and he says, it goes like this, Elohim is, he called it the reality principle in nature. But what we could say is it's just, it's the laws of physics, the laws of biology, the, the laws of the physical laws of the universe. And those things of course are the source of great pleasure, We don't have any enjoyment in the world without the laws of physics, without the laws of biology, but they can also cause great pain because illness of course comes from biology, Uh, hitting your hand uh, on the desk and smashing it. And the fact that you feel pain comes from the laws of physics. So it can cause us great pleasure, but also can be the source of pain. And the most important teaching there is that if this is Elohim, the reality principle in uh, in nature, Elohim doesn't care, there are no ethical ground rules, there's no morality in Elohim. And, and the way I often put it is that if, if, if I'm in the car with a cockroach and our car crashes, God's not gonna say, oh, I better save the rabbi, you know, I'll, say, I'll save Grobart and I'll make sure the cockroach gets killed because the cockroach isn't as ethically valuable as Rabbi Grobart, <laughs> Elohim doesn't do that. Right? We're both gonna get smashed. Or you could say there's me and there's Hitler next to me, God forbid, God, Elohim isn't gonna save me and make sure that Hitler dies in the car crash because that's just not how Elohim works. So that's Elohim. Adonai, so Adonai, the, the, the ways that we can transcend the physical world, the punishments that come from the laws of nature, that's, that's Adonai. And the best I can do here is give an example. So um, let's say, and this actually is a true, a true story. I, I was in a, a bicycle accident not that long ago. Well, right. you know, three years ago. And um, for me, that's not that long ago. <laughs> um, and what's interesting is that, I mean, in the greater scheme of my life, it, it actually wasn't that big an incident, but, but, but psychologically left a big imprint on my life. And um, so if, if we just go by the laws of nature, so I had a bike accident I was lying on the ground, so I couldn't move. and. Um, If it had just been up to Elohim, and I'm going to be a little dramatic here, it's probably not true, but I'm just going to, with your permission, I'll be a little dramatic. If it had been just for Elohim, I would have died because I couldn't move and I was bleeding and I would have bled to death and um, that the laws of nature would, this guy's finished, I couldn't move. Um, But of course I didn't, I didn't die. Um, So why didn't I die? Well, first of all, there were strangers on this bike path who saw somebody needed help. And they were motivated through a sense of just empathy for another suffering human being to come and help me. And then um, so they came and helped. And then um, I had a cell phone, they had cell phones. So they were able to take out these cell phones. Now, somebody, somebody had to invent the cell phone so somebody could call. And an ambulance could come. Now, of course, I was with my wife who was also with me. So, so she was able to, to help me and, and, and because she loves me and cares about me, although maybe she would have done it for a stranger. And then um, you know, we, there's medical technicians that come, and and they've trained for this, and other people have trained them, and and they have um, also ingenious machines that can help me right away. And then I go to the hospital. The hospital has very well trained doctors that know exactly what to do as soon as they see me. And um, and then friends visit me, and they and they bring me things. So the forces of creativity and ingenuity, and love and compassion all that, I don't want to say it defeats Elohim, but it balances Elohim. So suddenly just this, the laws of nature, which said, too bad, you're done. You, you can't get up, the laws of nature are totally against you. There's this other side, let's say to God, Adonai, all these forces that allow us to transcend um, the terrible things that Adonai could throw at us. And uh, and that's a theology I've been playing with the last, well, the last several years, but, um, but the last month, let's say since the, since the war in Ukraine broke out, because so what, what I was thinking is, is that, um, you know, we say we say the Shema, right? So the Shema is Shema Yisrael, Adonai, Eloheinu, Adonai, Echad, Hero Israel. And then we say Adonai is Elohim, because Eloheinu is just Elohim, just possessive. Adonai is Elohim. And then there's Adonai. And then we say Echad, one. It's all one. So the laws of nature plus all those things that allow us to transcend the laws of nature and heal and redeem ourselves, redeem each other, it's all one. So how does that work? How is it all one? I'm I'm not sure. It's complicated. I, I, I don't know if I could explain it fully. But for me, it works out like this. God provides the Elohim, the laws of nature. When we're born, that's what we've got. The human species deals with the laws of nature. They're a given. We provide the Adonai, so the Adonai are, because everything I talked about, inventing the cell phone, the doctor, the love of compassion, the kindness to mm-hmm. strangers, everything that helped me survive that incident comes from the human psyche, human ingenuity, human creativity, human love. We provide that. So, so, we, so we, it's not just that we, can, we, re, we recite that it's one, we have to make it one. So we, we have the Elohim as a given, but we provide the Adonai everything that allows us to transcend Elohim. And together it becomes one. And uh, that's a kind of theology that I have. And and really then it gives us something to do as human beings is um, help with that transcendence, lean towards love and compassion and mercy and creativity, and ingenuity, anything that helps. When you're leaning towards that, you're creating Adonai, and then you're creating that Achad, that oneness. Okay, that was a long, a long text study for one line, but.
0: (laughs) No, that was beautiful. I'm just, I'm kind of bowled over right now by all of these concepts that you introduced, starting with those two just kind of heart-rending stories and your experience of the last few years. I couldn't help but think, you know, before you went into the Elohim and Adonai, which I just think is so compelling, the idea that we are active participants in the idea of what God can provide right that we right. it almost imbues humans with this sense of of divinity in a sense right if we're creating a quality of God by the way that we exist in community with one another then that's exactly the created in God's image it gives a real new yeah. meaning to that phrase which I think is just beautiful
1: yeah I hadn't it thought also- of that that's great I hadn't thought of that uh, yeah that's that's created in God's image
0: right right if we are are literally making a definition of god right. that god cannot that definition of god as good, all good or god as mercy or adonai god as transcending physical nature if that requires humans to create then that's then then we are god and i think that's really interesting it also this kind of definition of god feels very human to me what the the text says he took counsel with his own heart I'm like we do that all the time as humans right we talk about yetzer haran yetzer hatov. we have regrets things we wish we could have done differently in our past and then we have a conversation with ourselves about okay well how do we want to change and grow from this experience and make new decisions that's kind of what it feels like this text is saying about God right that God is someone that can have regrets about the, the, the thing that he has created as architect now that he's putting on this different hat of King that like, but we make those choices all the time. You know, some days I'm Ali, the daughter, and some days I'm Ali, the writer. And sometimes those come in conflict with each other and it's about kind of just deciding values. So it just strikes me as like deeply cyclical that God creates us and we create God. And that these ideas of, that God is human and also humans are divine. I'm just kind of trying to wrap my brain around this a little bit right now, but that's such a beautiful idea that I had never considered before.
1: Yeah, um, the Hebrew phrase there, it's, it's, you, 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 get, you go astray sometimes with translations, but what can you do? But um, Rab- Rabami said he took counsel with his own heart. The Hebrew there is actually just two words, nimlach beliebo. Hmm. And Nimlach, you actually can hear the word in there. Yeah. Yeah. So Nimlach is, is, is that he has like these royal arguments with himself, like he's striving with himself. And just the translation we have here, he took counsel with his own heart, doesn't reflect the turmoil that's inside of God. And I, I can, I imagine sort of God is this, this internal, so it's almost like, you know, when we're trying to figure out what to do next, and maybe our stomach starts growling because that, you know, there's this, there's a physical manifestation of uncertainty. So that's what this is describing like inside of God, there's this binary turmoil or, or plural pluralistic turmoil. It's just God inside is just tying God's self up in knots trying to figure out who am I what do I want what do I like and and, so, and, and humans then have to come along and then provide I think the the harmony the, you know the balance as God just by God's self is just filled with this inner turmoil
0: yeah I love that idea of God with a stomach with an anxiety stomachache <laughs> right. you know yeah.
1: <laughs> too close to home sometimes for some of us but yeah
0: <laughs> it makes me wonder just to go back to the kind of original three lines that you gave us that God is omnipotent God is all good and evil exists you know you were describing these different kind of solutions to that puzzle that 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 has no answer but I don't know if to me it is such a a dichotomy that God is all good and that evil exists it doesn't strike like what you're describing here is that God can Sometimes do evil things. That's one part of God, you know. Maybe I, I wouldn't say evil. I would say the Elohim, right? That that right. evil exists, and there is also a goodness that sometimes can conquer that evil and sometimes can't because the world is not one that abides by principles of fairness. But why can't both those be true? Why is that a puzzle? I guess.
1: I mean, I guess in the end, what you can do is that. Uh, so you know. A lot of religious scholars go at this with a kind of intellectual gamemanship. I, I, let me just see if, let me look at these three sentences see if I can figure out how they can logically live together and that can't happen. You can't do that. I mean, they're constructed, the sentences are constructed so they can't all three be simultaneously true. And you have to sort of cheat and, and well, you don't have to cheat, you, you, could, um, you could just say there's no evil. You know, right or, or you could do what job did and just say um, God doesn't care you know God actually is evil God's you know doing this on purpose God's you know, God's tormenting me on purpose you know job does come to that there, there are people that come to it but um, but those are, um, those, are pre- those are pretty weak and dissatisfying I think for moderns um, and, and I'm not sure that um, Rabbi Kushner who um, I think wrote a wonderful book and filled with wisdom But his idea of an imperfect god um i I just think in some ways it it um if you get within the definition of god at least least in the the western world the western definition of god you have omnipotence you you have the kind of all-powerful and um so i think for a lot of people as wise as that book is it just it doesn't quite work so i think the only way that um you can successfully cheat this system is you have to start adding sentences to it. So there's three sentences. Let me add a sentence. You know, a, a sentence is that, um, but we have to help God with our love and compassion. Um, and that part of God does do evil, but it's not because God is evil. It's just because um, those are the laws of the universe. You, you just you just have to add sentences. And, um, and that takes it away from being just a logic game into a kind of theology that hopefully people can start to live with. Now, one thing I, I, I have to say outright is that, not everybody's interested in theology. Not everybody thinks about these things all the time. Um, I, I do. You know, I, I went into this career because of that. <laughs> but not everybody does. But I think that people do have spiritual sides, and I think they um, they can become troubled—not not just troubled. They can become inspired by God, and they can become troubled by by the world and what how that reflects on God. So I think some thinking about the problem. Can help people even if they're not theologians, even even if they're not spending their days thinking about God, but but just people that are um want to have a spiritual side and want to be inspired, want to have some place to go with their disappointments, and, and I think um so I think thinking about this and, and coming up with these kind of systems can be a healing enterprise.
0: Absolutely, I think there comes a time even if God or theology aren't words that are in your vocabulary day to day, I think there comes a time where you 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 question justice or you question your place in the world. And I find it quite inspiring. The idea that we can add, add a text to these three sentences that makes it more palatable or, or empowers us to feel like we have a place in these sentences, a place in our understanding of how the world works.
1: Yeah. you have a text to share?
0: I do. So I want to talk today a little bit about my very favorite piece of Jewish text, which comes from the Passover Haggadah, which is my favorite holiday. And this line actually inspired a play that I wrote called In Every Generation. So everyone is probably familiar with this line. I'll just read it in Hebrew and English and then spend some time talking about it. So Bechol chayava ut yatsami In every generation, one is obligated to see oneself as one who personally went out of went out from Egypt. So this is a very famous quote. It's kind of a bedrock of the Magid section of the Haggadah, where we share the story of the exodus from Egypt every year. And we always talk about this quote, I think, or I've read a lot of people writing about this quote as really taking ownership of our own history and as a way to invite the story of Passover to kind of be in conversation with our present circumstances, to look around us and ask, you know, what are the Egypts of today? Who are the Israelites that need to be freed? How can we help? But I'm more interested, or at least today, I'm more interested in what the quote literally means to me, not just what it kind of calls us to do. So in every generation, one is obligated to see oneself as one who personally went out of Egypt. To me, so it's saying we're not just invited to, but we are obligated. So there is some kind of lack of um, will here. It's something that we are required to do as part of the Passover ritual to imagine ourselves as people, as the Israelites being freed, as going out of Egypt, to not just tell the story, but to be a part of the story. But I think that's asking a lot, even for someone like me that has an extremely active imagination, right? How are you supposed to imagine yourselves as actually being freed? Are you supposed to like recreate some kind of desert conditions? I don't know, that, I, that's obviously not what the Haggadah is calling us to do, but how do you do that? And for me, I think the answer is embedded in the rituals themselves. You know, I think there's something inherently magical about ritual. I think it's a kind of time travel. You know, when you dip the carpas in the salt water as part of the Seder, I don't know about you, but every time I do this, I think about my first memory of doing this as a little kid when I tried it for the first time. And it was um, so gross, honestly. And I was sitting next (laughs) to my cousin, I remember, and we both spit the carpas out into our napkins. And, you know, I think about my mom telling the story of when her grandparents led the Seder and she tried the parsley and then my grandparents and my great grandparents and so on. And I can feel them all doing that same ritual, saying those same words. And I think about my kids one day, God willing doing it. And I can imagine it, actually imagine it, this never ending line of reciting the same prayers, the same passages, doing the same rituals. And that to me, I think is how we can magically transport ourselves back into that state of being the Israelites who personally went out of Egypt. It's not just about imagining ourselves, it's actually doing these rituals. And by the doing the rituals, we are here. You know, the tradition teaches that when God gave the Israelites the Torah at Mount Sinai, it wasn't just the Israelites who were present, but we were actually, every, every Jew that has ever lived and will ever live was present. It's a covenant that God makes with every generation that we were all there standing at Sinai. And, you know, I've been thinking a lot about people describe Jewish mythology and history and storytelling as circular, you know? Um, And I think that's true, but it's not just a circle in terms of it happening over and over again on the scale of every year that we celebrate the same holidays or read the same parashot, or, you know, the kind of circle of violence that people talk about every century. There's a new kind of wave of violence against the Jews. I think it's something smaller than that, actually. It's a circle that's happening inside of us spiritually. Yeah. And when I think about that, I mean, I wrote a play based on this text, a play yeah. that, that takes this text as a jumping off point for what does it mean to connect to, to versions of ourselves and our families throughout history? What does it mean to repeat these same rituals and how do they look and feel and smell and taste differently depending on what you know the, what's happening in the world? But I wanna, it really reminded me today when I was thinking about it, about another one of my favorite Jewish texts. So I'm gonna cheat and share another quote. Um, it's from Chaim Potuk's remarkable novel. My name is Asher Lev, which is my favorite book. And it's towards the end of the book. And the quote is, I saw my mythic ancestor. Come with me, my precious Asher. This is the ancestor speaking to Asher Lev, the protagonist. Come with me, my precious Asher. You and I will walk together through the centuries." So first of all, aside from that just being kind of a beautiful line, um, I'll give you a little bit of background. For those of you who have not read the book, it's about this young boy named Asher Lev who wants to be a painter. And he's growing up in a Hasidic community in which being an artist and being a Jew are often at war. And he has to make all of these small and then big choices between his religion, between his family, between his devotion to God, and between the making of his art and what that demands of him, and how he can be true to himself as an artist and true to himself as a Jew. And throughout the book, there's this mythic ancestor of his that's kind of thundering through the generations talking to him. And when I first read this book, I think I was in high school, I just remember feeling just completely seen by this book, that sometimes I too had dreams of my ancestors kind of visiting me, not just in my sleep, but in these moments of ritual that I feel, you know, I haven't met my great-great-grandparents that lived in Sarajevo and Italy and Russia and Ukraine. I haven't met these people, but they feel as real to me sometimes as the people that I do know. And I wonder, is that just because I have an active imagination? Because I'm someone that is so transformed by stories and by stories of family. But I think there is something within our tradition that calls us to actually be in community with people that are no longer with us and the people that and with people that will come after us. You know, I think about us all being there at Sinai and I don't know. I mean, I don't I don't have any memories of being at Sinai. That's not something that I can experience. But I do, in a sense, have, have these moments where I feel deeply connected to people that lived in centuries that I don't even know what they looked like. But I, I feel them kind of thundering through the way that I experience the world, particularly when I'm engaging with ritual. So that's what I'm thinking about today, is the way that time is, in the words of Kurt Vonnegut, unstuck inside of Jewish ritual, that we're experiencing moments of Jewish history all the time, and that that's not just a coincidence, but that's actually a commandment. That's something we are obligated to do.
1: Yeah, thank you. Um, there's a lot there. Uh, i trying to think of where, where to start. Um, uh, first of all, I was thinking that your play and um, it's just a brilliant play. And I, I haven't got to see it because uh, it hasn't been shown that many places, but I, I'll see it when it comes to San Diego. But um, it's really an extended midrash on, on that line. And that's what midrash is. Midrash are narratives that are built on you know, different verses from Torah. And uh, you know, your play is a, a wonderful example of a modern midrash uh, using, uh, I, I'm gonna say your family. I know it's not your family, it's a fictional <laughs> family, but, uh, but knowing you and your family, I, I, I'm, I'm, I spotted some similarities. But um, I guess I, I really love the idea of ritual as time travel. You know, I, I think, um, I think it's, a, it's, it's a wonderful definition of not just Jewish ritual, but ritual in general. And uh, what I learned from your play, which I think is um, it's really interesting. I think we, we all, everybody that, that has, has been to Satyrs, let's say, or, or grew up going to seders probably has experienced this, that, yeah, you're reliving something every seder. But what you're reliving is probably not the leaving Egypt. You're reliving previous saders, and, uh, <laughs> and what what I remember, like when I was a kid, was you know just wonderful satyrs with my Eastern European relatives, you know, who had left Russia and uh, and their stories, and they're telling their stories at the table, and 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 then later there'd be stories about. The stories or stories about the Seder about you know bringing the wrong kind of gefilte fish and everybody uh or people spilling wine or just um just so so year after year we would travel back to in time to our earliest seders now there's something you do in the play where you do that so, so in the play I'm not giving away too many plot elements here yeah. uh, but uh you know you had this one family that's celebrating seders in different generations and each one references a, a different period of time but you do have a scene that's leaving Egypt too. And somehow that's what's, what's magic mm-hmm. in the play. And it's, it's kind of a magical moment in the play, um, literally magical moment, because you have this same family that, uh, that we've gotten to know that's a modern European American family. Suddenly they're cast back to Egypt and they're celebrating the very first Seder, but it's the same family. And, um, mm-hmm. and I, I think that scene alone is the Midrash that, um, that, that shows us through real characters the time travel, so they really they really have traveled back in time, and I'm 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 really looking forward to seeing it to see to see how, how the state how the director works that out, and suddenly they're back in the, and and there's a few other times where you have the Vonnegut kind of becoming unstuck in time, like the the just becomes unstuck in time, and um, and for you to for you to turn that into um, a whole commentary on this in every generation, I think is really brilliant, which makes it a just a wonderful piece of Jewish literature.
0: Well, thank you. I didn't mean to be uh, giving a shameless plug for my upcoming play in the selection of text. But I mean, yes, that is what I was trying to do with this play was was right kind of a, a theatricalized extended midrash of this line. But I think it's because this line to me strikes me as the most perfect encapsulation of what Judaism means to me. I think there is something about an obligation which creates both a burden, let's say, and and a delight to be called into imagination, to be called into empathy. And, you know, you're a writer, and I'm a writer, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm a theater person, an artist. And that's something that we're called to do in art, also, right? right Is to right. imagine yourself in circumstances of others, whether you're an actor or a painter and you're trying to paint something about the human experience or you're trying to write it, that you are obligated to tell some truth inside of that creation. The act of creation of something that is human requires a degree of empathy. And I think that's also what attracts me so much to both art making and to Judaism is that that to participate in a ritual, to be called into the experience of connecting with God is to be called into the experience of connecting to other humans, to empathize. And I just think that's a remarkable ask, you know? I And I think that's what we're all called to do all the time in small ways, in our, in our dealings, in our own relationships. But I think cosmically, just to connect it back to the text that you brought in, I think that's part of what Elohim is, you know, yeah. or not Elohim, Adonai, I should right. say. That's part of what, what this business is of, of being human is to imagine yourself as part of something greater, as part of a, a, a con- continuation, And to just really have empathy, you know, I'm thinking about the story you shared about your bicycle accident and all of the different feats of ingenuity and of kindness that allowed you to survive, right? And I think that 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 can only happen through human empathy, through seeing a need and through fulfilling that need. And I think that that spark of God or however you want to phrase it is something that we're called to see in every generation you know, just to connect our
1: two texts. Right, right. That's really interesting. Um, I I wanted to just talk about Asherle for a second. And and I have to say, I'm I'm at a bit of a disadvantage. This was a very long time since I read (laughs) it. I I, I probably read it in high school also. Um, But um, that was a long time ago for me. Uh, And um, But one thing I was thinking is that, um, so yeah, so he's he's, he's walking with his ancestor. Mm -hmm. And the ancestor really is a burden to him. I mean, that's the drama. The drama of the book is... He he can only really achieve his great artistic expression by stomping on the ancestor. I mean, I'm, I'm using that maybe a little too dramatically, but um, but I guess what 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 I'm understanding from you, and this is um, I'm, I'm thinking back about your play a little bit also, is that um, that's the burden. I mean, the bur- the burden of the past is real. I think for all of us, there's there's mm-hmm. all sorts of ways the past could be a burden to all of us the past of a generation ago, the past of yesterday, or the past of a thousand years, it doesn't matter. There's, the, the past does create burdens, um, but also delights. And um, I think you have to time travel in order to really relieve the burden. And, and that's what I saw in your play, is that um, the, the, a lot of the characters are burdened by the past and, and, and it's very clear, uh, but by the actual time travel that you seem to show in the play, that, that relieves the burden, or at least maybe there's a catharsis there. And and the catharsis comes from the time travel. So so you, so you need the time travel. Which of course for us we can't really travel through time. All we have is ritual. So so we need these Jewish rituals in order to achieve that kind of catharsis. So the the past is not just a burden, but a blessing.
0: Yeah, I, and I think that's true. The one. Um... A slight adjustment I might make to that based on My Name is Asher Lev is that this mythic ancestor starts as this terrifying presence for Asher Lev. He's too afraid to fully enter his calling as an artist and fully pursue that because he has this ancestor that is haunting him. Right. The end of the book is where this quote comes where the ancestor invites Asher to travel with him. Right. That right. that the, the actual transformation of the ancestor is from a burden to a companion. And and the idea is that there have been wrongs that they're each writing in their own ways and meeting together to write those wrongs. But but Asher takes the hand of his ancestor towards the end of the book and actually goes on this mythic journey thundering through the generations to undo the wrongs and to right some of the wrongs and also to probably make some wrongs of his own I mean he essentially kind of has to part ways with his family at the end of the book through his art he commits a wrong but there is healing that happens in that in, in stepping forth Holding rather than being haunted by your past, taking your past by the hand and going through the generations together. And I think there is something not just magical about that, but really quite beautiful about the idea of reconciling ourselves with our past in order to move forward. And just to bring it back to the line from the Haggadah, like that is the Passover Seder. In, and yeah. in, in, in and of itself, it is confronting the evils of Egypt and, and the freedom and the slavery. That that journey is how we heal those burdens of our past.
1: Yeah, yeah. I guess it, it's, it's the Passover Seder. It's also Judaism. Since Judaism, yeah. as, we, Judaism as we live it is holding on to the past, feeling burdened by it, but still moving forward. And in a nutshell, that's, that's the only choice we have to live full Jewish mm-hmm. lives. I also, maybe just to tie the two texts together, you, 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 we provide Adonai the mercy and the transcendence, but we have to take Elohim's hand. We can't ignore Elohim. Even though in the Shema, we say Adonai, Elohim, Adonai. So we say Adonai twice because we prefer Adonai. We, we, we yeah. prefer the mercy and the forgiveness and the loving kindness and the compassion, but Elohim's there with us. And, and we have to incorporate that into our lives, not just into our theology, but into our lives. So we're taking the past by the hand and moving forward. And Elohim and Adonai are, also have to walk hand in hand because that's the only way to move forward. Thank you. I love this. Uh, and I really appreciate sharing texts with you, as always.
0: Me too, as always. This was such a pleasure. Thank you. Havruta Jewish texts and their influence on our lives is brought to you by the San Diego Jewish Academy. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts, where you can also rate, review us, and subscribe. Our music is composed by former podcast guest Gail Strom. Thank you so much for listening and we'll talk to you next time.